Okay, if you will turn to Malachi chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses uh, 2, 17 through 3, 5. I think it's important for us to understand that um, the, the books of the Bible have a flow to them. Um, they, they tell a story, and it's easy to miss that if, if we're not conscious of what's going on in the book. And Malachi, maybe more so than a lot of the other books, there's a very easy flow through it. Uh, in our first week in Malachi, we found out that there were two types of people, uh, the people of God's favor and the people of God's fury. And in the second week, we find out why Malachi was prophesying about two types of people because the priests in Malachi's time, the priests of, of uh, Jerusalem, were taking God for granted. And it was showing up in their worship, and it was showing up in their sacrifice. Uh, their worship was lackluster. Their sacrifices were polluted. We found out the pollution hurts. And there was a first hint in that week that, that maybe we need to be careful not to make the same mistake. But that's emphasized in week three when we saw the consequences that the priests suffered for putting God on the back shelf. And we have to understand that there, there's some condemnation there, but it hadn't happened yet. And what is really happening is Malachi is giving these priests the opportunity to repent, the opportunity to, to turn back on their ways, turn back towards the Lord. Uh, they've taken them for granted. They're worshiping other gods. They're doing all sorts of, of unusual stuff that they shouldn't be doing. And, and God is giving them a warning. And, and in that, uh, it became clear that we need to be careful not to make the same mistake. Now, that, it's easy for us to miss that because we're not Levites, uh, but we are, and we find out in the New Testament, we are a nation of priests. We're a royal priesthood. So the cautions that go to the Levites come to us as well. And, we, and because we are a royal priesthood, each one of us has a ministry. Collectively, we have a ministry, but each one of us contribute something to that ministry. That's why we're called the body of Christ. That's why we say that we are better together, because each one of us that is a member of this church has something to contribute to what this church is called to do. So last week, we looked at the family in Malachi's time, and it was, it's not Malachi shifting the emphasis to go, by the way, I want to talk about family. Uh, it's Malachi saying, here's where all this comes to bear. It comes to bear on God's family, on God's children. They are a family unit, and uh, the family is a reflection of the relationship that God has with his children, with his people. In Malachi's times, that would be the Jewish people. In our time, it's the church. So the family unit is a reflection of God's relationship with his church. Uh, God's people in Malachi's time were not being faithful. And so the family was suffering because of that. And because it's a reflection of the relationship that God has with his people, God's reputation is suffering as well. So by now we've seen that there are a good number of people among God's family in Malachi's time who are unfaithful to him. Now, that's not all of them. Uh, it's a, a good number of the priests were, but a good number of the people were as well. Not everybody was, but the majority of the people were taking God for granted. They were worshiping other gods. They were shoving God out of their lives. Now, this didn't happen 
overnight. It wasn't something that was sudden. It was something that crept up on him. And that's how spiritual melees happens in our lives. It creeps up on us. And all of a sudden, one day we look around and we go, how did we get here? Uh, so these people are in bad shape at this point. God has given them the opportunity to repent. He sent the message out. He's got Malachi, the last of the Old Testament prophets, uh, where he's about to go silent, uh, scripturally speaking, for 400 years, and, and then we'll see the advent of the, the New Testament and the gospel and Jesus Christ. We're kind of uh, celebrating that on these mornings before Christmas. Um, and so we're going to find out today what happens to those people who are unfaithful. So we're going to find out what happens to those people who have rejected God, who are actually accusing him and, and refuse to give him the respect and the reverence that he's due. Today we're going to find out what happens when the Lord comes. And yes, the Lord is coming. Now, that means something a little bit different to the people of Malachi's time than it does to us, but the message is the same. So we need to listen carefully and see what's happening uh, in Judea at this time because there are lessons that we can learn. Our sermon title is Who Can Stand? Uh, this is part five of the coming messenger, our series in Malachi. Now our passage is going to roll out in three distinct steps. We're going to see what the problem is in verse 17. Then we will see the prophecy in verse 1 of chapter 3. And then we will see the people in verses 2 through 5 of chapter 3. So, so far in Malachi, every time God has levied an accusation against his people, the people have responded in a self-centered manner. They have been self-consumed and and they've been self-righteous and it reveals the struggle of their hearts they have a lack of respect for God there's a lack of reverence and they're minimizing their sin now this is something that we can look at and and maybe compare ourselves to them and go well we would never do that we would never go worshiping other gods and so on and so forth but it started with the minimization of their sin and I got to tell you something. I think as human beings, many of us have that tendency to do it. Well, what I'm doing is not so bad. Look at what's in the paper. Look at what's going on over here. Look at what's going on over there. This is not so bad. Or maybe we, we kind of think that God's going to make an exception because we're such fantastic people. That God's going to look at our sin and go, that's okay. Don't worry. It's covered by grace. You don't have to worry anything about it. And we begin trivializing the things that we do that are an offense to our Father. And, and that begins to grow in our lives. And over time, it can cause a separation between us and God. Now, it doesn't doom us eternally, but it does interfere with the communion that we need with our Father so desperately in order to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. So it interferes with our capability to hear the Holy Spirit as he counsels us and, and guides us. And that's what happened to these people. They drifted away slowly, and all of a sudden, God's got to send a prophet to go, you've done it again. You've fallen away. You've done everything that I told you not to do, and somehow you think that because you're God's chosen people, you can get away with this. We've got to be careful that we don't fall into the same trap. So our first step in our passage is God succinctly identifies the problem that these people are struggling with. Verse 17 of chapter 2. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? Now, there it is right there. See, God says, 
You've wearied the Lord with, with, with your words. And, and they respond, well, what are you talking about? You know, what, where have we wearied you with our words? We, you know, we're godly people. And, and so God says by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? Now, here's a verse for the 21st century. We live in a time when everybody is saying what is evil is good and what is good is evil. I mean, the culture around us tells us, you know, hey, your God is too narrow-minded. Your God is too brutal. You know, you, you think he's the only God? You think he's the only answer? There are other ways to do this. And by the way, we don't like the way that you act in our culture because, because you're godly people and you, you're doing bad things. When we strive to do godly things, we're accused of doing evil things. And the evil things that are happening in the world, the world is saying these are good things. I mean, we're just being who we are. So that's the one accusation is the evil and the good get switched around, but the other accusation is where is the God of justice? Now we hear this all the time. Where was God when the planes hit the towers? Where was God when that shooting occurred? Where was God when the, the mass murderer, the, the, the serial killer, was killing all these people? And it's, it's not a question, it's an accusation. As if God's so good, why is he allowing these things to happen? We hear the challenge when we share the gospel. I can never worship a God that allows that type of evil in the world. And the fact of the matter is that the evil comes from man. So we have a tendency as a culture to blame God for the things that man does. We live in a fallen world. There's evil out there. Bad things are going to happen. And in those accusations, we lose sight of the eternality of the gospel. Malachi levies these accusations against the priests, against the Levites. He rebukes them for this tiresome challenge to God's integrity over God's patience with those who are unrighteous. Now, it, this is not, we, we have to be very careful not to anthropomorphize God. That's a big word that means give him human traits. So God's not sitting on the throne going, oh, this just wears me out, I've got to take a nap. God's saying, this is getting old. You're doing this over and over again, and there will be a price to pay for disobeying me. And what these people are actually doing, they're judging God. They're judging God. They are evaluating God's actions. They are assessing him. Instead of being humble before them as they're called to be, they're looking at God and condemning him accusing him. So God's response to this problem that they are judging him is he issues a prophecy through Malachi. And it starts in verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Now, he says, I'm sending a messenger to prepare the way before me. Now, the Jews would understand this because what God is saying is, I'm coming. I'm coming in the flesh. I'm coming to stand before you. They know what this is about. God delivered them out of Egypt, uh, brought them through the wilderness, brought them to Mount Sinai, 
And while they were camped at the bottom of Mount Sinai, the top of the mountain was enveloped in smoke and fire. And they could hear his words up there. And they were in the presence of God. The mountain was kind of between them, and there were some clouds between them, but they were close enough that it terrified them. And they told Moses, don't let us come into his presence because we'll die. They know what it means when God comes. And God is telling them right here, I'm going to send a messenger, and he's going to prepare the way before me. Well, how will they know when this happens? Rest of the verse, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. He says, I'm going to send a messenger. The messenger is going to be the messenger of the covenant that I have between you and me. And you're going to know this happened when he shows up at the temple. Now, we know what happened there. Malachi's people don't quite get it yet. But the messenger is John the Baptist. And his message is the message of the covenant. Repent. Be baptized. Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they should have known that this was the real deal because Jesus shows up where? In the temple. In the temple. Of course, that wouldn't be for another 400 years for these folks. So, what happens when he comes? Who is he going to come for? Now, uh, again, this is an area where There was a lot of misinterpretation of what the scriptures meant back then. They thought that God, when he appeared, when the Messiah appeared, uh, that he would be there to deliver them from the Roman oppression. He thought that he would make them victorious, that he would vindicate them, that he would set them up on high and kind of show the whole world, well, these are my people and you've been mistreating them. You are all in trouble and they're very special. So who does he come for? And what does he do for those people that he comes Well, that's step three. He's going to come for the people. But which people? Look at verse two of chapter three. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? Now the phrasing, these aren't questions. These are rhetorical statements. And really what Malachi is saying here is nobody nobody can endure the day of his coming nobody can stand when he appears you see nobody not one is righteous nobody is holy enough to stand before the living God so he's coming for everyone he's coming for everybody now there are two types of people in everybody and we're going to see that in the next couple of verses, but let me tell you who they are. There, are. there are his children, and there are those who are not his children. And it's very important to understand the distinction between them because different things are going to happen to these two types. Look at his, let's take a look at his children first. Now, the, these are those, that small remnant among the Jewish people that revere and respect God, those who truly worship him. For them, for he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. And the refiner's fire, if, if you know anything about metalworking, the, the fire that the refiner uses is to burn out the impurities of the metal. A silversmith is going to burn out the impurities until the silver shines. A fuller's soap, it does the same thing. It washes away the impurities. He will sit as a refiner, verse 3, 
and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. He's going to refine his priests. And he's going to refine them to the point to where they bring a righteous offering, a righteous type of worship. And when that happens, when he puts them through the refining, it's then, verse 4 says, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. In other words, he's going to restore them. He's going to restore them to a right relationship with himself. Now, we need to understand that, you know, this all sounds fantastic, but the imagery that Malachi gives us here means that this is not going to be an easy process. They're going to refine them by fire. They're going to scrub the, the, the taint off of them. These are things that are very difficult to go through. And he's saying it's not going to be an easy process, but because God is doing it, it's going to have the intended effect. And the effect is going to be it's going to make you righteous worshipers. Well, that's good news for those Levites that are faithful. The Lord comes, he'll purify the people of God so they'll be righteous worshipers. But what about, what about those who aren't? What about those who don't heed the warning, don't turn back, don't repent from what they're doing? What about those who do not respect and revere him, who take him for granted, those who accuse him, those who offer these polluted sacrifices? He addresses them in verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against the, those who swear falsely, against those who press the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now, we've got to be careful not to look at that list and think that we're innocent of those things so that we're innocent of judgment because the final item on that list is those who do not fear him. those who don't revere him, those that don't have that reverential awe of who he is. The Lord will draw near to them to condemn them, to condemn those who disobey and reject them. So those, those are the three steps that Malachi takes in warning these people. We, we saw the problem. The people are judging God. The priests are judging God. We saw the prophecy. He's coming in the flesh. He's coming in person. And we saw that he's coming for the people. He's coming for everyone, those who worship him and those who don't. He's going to refine his worshipers. He's going to condemn those who don't. Now, in Malachi's time, the the message was all about the coming of the Messiah. And and that he would come to purify his own, those who worship him. Uh, that, that was startling in, in its day when Jesus finally did come. They, they didn't realize that he was coming to refine them. Um, but later on, we find out the judgment begins where? In the house of God. Uh, you know, we would really kind of prefer that judgment began outside the house of God. <laughs> uh, because we're good people, we don't need to be refined. Uh, of course, that's the same thing that the Levites thought at that time. And and praise God that he's, he's patient with us just like he was with them. So in Malachi's time, they were talking about the Messiah. Um, and and we, we would see this roll out 
Uh, I mean, you know, we have the benefit of hindsight. We know that the messenger is John the Baptist. Uh, we know that John the Baptist proclaims the kingdom coming. He has this baptism of repentance and, and that uh, he's pointing towards Jesus Christ. He says, there's one who's coming whose shoelaces I'm not fit to tie. It's Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ would appear in the temple. But I want to kind of concentrate on the message to Malachi's people because he's saying, repent. Get your house in order because the Lord is coming. Now, the message is the same for us. There, there are different implications. But we have to understand that Jesus is coming back. He promised that he would come back. He promised that he'd go prepare a place for us for those who have confessed him as Jesus Christ as, as Savior, those who have repented from their sins, turned away from them, that he would come back and take us to a new home. And this time, he will not just refine us as worshipers, but he will perfect those who worship him and eternally condemn those who don't. You see, the only difference between us and Malachi, because we know that he's talking to the Levites. We know that we are the Levites. We are the priests of, uh, to the world. We carry the blessing of the word of God to the lost. The only difference between us and the Levites is that, that our time has a definite end. There, there, there needs to be some urgency in how we share the gospel because there will come a day when nobody will have the opportunity to receive it. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back at a definite time. And at that point, if you haven't received Jesus Christ, you're lost forever. So God is setting the template in Malachi, saying this is what it looks like. When, when the Messiah shows up, he's going to refine you or condemn you. This time when the Lord shows up to take those who believe in him home, he will condemn those who don't believe in him forever. For us, for those who do call upon his name as Lord, he's going to refine us and perfect us in our worship. What is worship? You know, a lot of people when we talk about worship think we're talking about the song portion of the service. But worship comes in a lot of forms. Worship can be something that rises up inside us. It can be an emotion, a feeling, an inclination. We can adore him, that's worship. We can love God, that's worshiping God. We can revere him, that is worshiping God. We can honor him in everything that we do, that's a form of worship. We can be actively involved in this. We can sing to him. That's worship. We can read the word. We can pray. We can preach. We can teach. We can serve. Serving is an act of worship. All of these things bring glory to God. But the paramount thing amongst all the things that we can do that would bring glory to God would be to share the gospel, to share the fact that God, through the strength and, and the, the presence of the Holy Spirit, can transform people that they can be changed, they can be brought out of the darkness into the light, that they can be changed from dead people into people who will live forever. Sharing the gospel reveals the glory of God. God is most glorified in the world when his power and love are put on display. And that means the gospel is being preached to those who need Jesus. The gospel is the glory of God. 
Paul knew that. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. 2 Corinthians 4, 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we could commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It shows up again in 1 Timothy. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Starting with verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God which I have been entrusted You see, God intends to refine us and bring us to a point where we are righteous worshipers. And every time we proclaim the gospel, we proclaim the glory of God. And we move one step ahead in that process. The other things we do are just as important. We'll all have eternity to continually be drawn closer to God, continually being refined and perfected in his presence. But the gospel, the gospel is urgent. The gospel has a sell-by date. It's the one thing that we're called to do, brothers and sisters, that has a deadline. It's the one thing that we're called to do that has a deadline. Why? Because he's coming. And he's coming physically. And then it will be too late for those who are not his. It's our obligation, our message, to share the good news of Jesus Christ with all those who need Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. And even now, Father, as we prepare ourselves to come to the communion table, we pray that your spirit would move among us, Lord. Prick our hearts for those who need you. Open our mouths, Father. Give us boldness in speaking the truth of the transformational power of the blood of Christ. Father, help us to examine ourselves as we sit at this table, Lord, that we might be renewed and restored to a right relationship with you. Grant us repentance, Father, uh, that we might be clear of anything that would impede our communion with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.